Well, let's just jump into the text today. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8. Paul is still talking about the Corinthians taking up an offering to help the poor churches in Jerusalem. He's going to spend two chapters talking about taking up this offering and sending it to poor Christians in Jerusalem. And what we're going to see today is that God is rich and he's a big spender. Ray Ortland said that. God is rich in grace and he's a big spender, which means that we can never deplete him of his grace. He'll never run out. He will never declare bankruptcy. Jesus will never declare, I declare bankruptcy. He'll never run out of grace. And that just might be enough to assure your little sin-prone heart today. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, look at verse 8 and hear the word of the Lord. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Well, notice first that Paul is quick to point out that he is not commanding the Corinthians to give to the offering which was being collected for the Jerusalem church. He's not bullying them. He's not twisting their arm until they cry, uncle. Paul knows that, the, that only the gospel can truly stir a heart to give with the right motives that honor and glorify God. Paul is just highlighting the grace of God that we saw last week that came to these poor Macedonian churches, which then prompted them in their giving to the poor churches in Jerusalem. And Paul is doing that. He's highlighting that grace so that it would spur the Corinthians to finish taking up this offering that they had already started and thus prove that their love for the suffering church in Jerusalem is the real deal too, just like the churches in Macedonia. So catch Paul's tone here. He says, I say this not as a command. I'm not telling you you have to take up this offering. What Paul wants to do is test the sincerity of their love. Did, did they mean it when they said, let's take up this offering for the church in Jerusalem? He wants to test the sincerity of their love by comparing it with the earnestness of those Macedonian churches. I like the way the Net Bible, the New English translation, translates uh, this verse where we wind to verse 7 and 8. It says, make sure that you excel in this act of kindness too. I'm not saying this as a command, but I am testing the genuineness of your love by comparison with the eagerness of others. So Paul is not commanding them to give. There is nothing heavy-handed about Paul's appeal because Paul knows that when it comes to giving... It is not a matter of setting up rules, but a matter of the heart and a matter of the conscience. 
Paul knows that you cannot legislate giving because it is always a matter of the heart. That means then that we should always be wary of anyone who tries to lay down rules about giving or who try to prescribe ways about giving that are authoritative. Alistair Begg is very helpful when he says this, We have no basis upon which to dictate to others about the use of money. We each have the responsibility to submit ourselves to the authority of Scripture as it comes home to our minds and to our hearts. Any attempt to encourage ourselves, or anyone else for that matter, to give to the work of the gospel with any kind of mechanism that does not begin with the grace of God is a flawed mechanism. The starting point is not the needs of the world. The starting point is not the particular concerns of this or this. The starting point is the grace of God. God is a giving God. Because He is such a giving God, we should be grateful that He is, and our gratitude should then release itself in our own giving. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. Giving begins with the gospel landing on human hearts. Not commands, not law landing on human hearts. It's the good news landing on human hearts. And we see this when children get candy and they don't want to share it with their siblings, right? So as parents, we tell them, Sally, give Johnny some of your Skittles. You need to share. And what does Sally do? What does she say? Very reluctantly, she says, Here, Johnny, Mom said I have to give you some Skittles, but you only get three. That's not from the heart. What you want is Sally to come up to her brother Johnny and just give him Skittles without being told, to give from the heart. And that pleases you as a parent, right? And that's what God wants of his children, that we would give Not because we are being commanded by someone to give, but because our hearts want to give. God wants you to be generous with your money. And when you're generous and you want to be generous with your money, God is glorified and God is well pleased. That's why Paul then says in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, I want your giving to be genuine. I want your giving to be from the heart because you know that's how Jesus gave. You know that he gave from his heart and not because God the Father twisted his arm. Verse 9 is telling us that Jesus' love was genuine. His generosity was genuine. No one had to twist his arm or manipulate him to go to the cross. His love was genuine. The real deal from the heart. And so it's the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God, the generosity of God that has motivated those poor Macedonian churches to pull their very limited resources and to give them to the also very poor churches in Jerusalem. 
And it's that same grace of God, that generosity of God, that unmerited favor of God that Paul points to in order to stir the Corinthians to give to the poor churches in Jerusalem as well. And notice that Paul gives the reason or the ground for the Corinthians to give this financial relief. We see it in that first word in verse 9, for. Look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The reason we give and love and care for others is because of what happened in the incarnation. Jesus left the glories of heaven to become the God-man, fully God, fully man, 100% God, 100% man, with those two natures, God and man, united in one person. That's what the creed of Chalcedon or the definition of Chalcedon was about in 451 AD when the church got together, 520 bishops or pastors got together to refute some false teaching and they says this is what the scriptures say about Jesus the God-man. Those two natures are united together in one person. You've heard me say many times throughout the years, we must in the same breath And in the same sentence, say that Jesus is fully God, fully man, with those two natures united together in one person. It's not enough to just say Jesus was 100% God, 100% man. We must always, in the same breath and in the same sentence, say those two natures were united together. And when the two natures came together, they didn't cancel out any part or any property of the other nature. The Chalcedonian Creed goes on to describe this union of God and man in the person of Jesus as these natures coming together unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisible, inseparably. The theological term for this is the hypostatic union, the coming together of those two natures. Jesus left the glories of heaven And became the God-man. Where those two natures were joined together and united in one person. And he did that in order to live a perfect life. Live a perfect life and die a perfect yet brutal death on the cross. So that, as Paul says in verse 9, we might enjoy the riches of salvation. Here's what Paul is saying. Jesus was outrageously rich in all things and he became incomprehensibly poor for us so that we who were desperately poor in sin might be made immeasurably rich in grace. He left the glories of heaven to become poor, meaning to take on human flesh in order to accomplish our salvation. So verse 9 is telling us that God is rich in grace and he's a big spender. He put his money where his mouth is by sending his own son. God's rich in grace and he's a big spender. And that's the best commentary 
on 2 Corinthians 8 9 that there is. God is loaded with grace and he's just throwing it everywhere. You thought Oprah was generous? No way. God's just throwing his grace everywhere. He's not stingy. He's not stingy like a kid with Skittles, a whole bag of Skittles. You can have three, I'll have 50. He's not stingy, he's not a miser, he's not a curmudgeon, he won't nickel and dime you, he's generous. Now, this is not how many people see God today. Some Christians even think that Jesus is uptight about his grace. Listen, God is rich with grace and mercy and love and kindness, and you can come to him with all of your sin, whatever it is, and he will receive you. Let me ask you this morning, what sin do you need to bring to him today? What sin do you personally that you're struggling with? Don't worry about other people. What are you struggling with? What sin do you need to bring to him today? You know what it is because the Spirit has been nudging you gently. You know exactly what it is. It's time to forsake it and to kill it to leave it behind and drag it out into the light. What darling sin of yours do you need to bring to your Savior today? What sin is clinging to you and draining your heart and destroying your life and your relationships? Come to your Savior today. He has nothing but grace for you. He's rich with grace, and your sin cannot outspend him. You cannot drain him of his grace. He will never run out. You cannot deplete him. He has plenty more grace for you. He's not about to run out. His inventory is not running low. His love is not limited for you. In fact, he unlimits his love and grace for you. For all eternity, God is just going to be showering us with his grace, unlimiting his grace day by day by day by day. That's how Paul described eternity on the new earth. One word, grace. They asked Paul, what's heaven like? Grace. Listen to what he says in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that, here's the whole reason Jesus saved you, okay? You listening, Christian? You should know that. Why did Jesus save me? I'm about to tell you. If you woke up today thinking, hmm, I wonder why Jesus saved me. I wonder why he became the God-man, fully God, fully man, two natures united in one person. I'm about to tell you. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So we are saved by grace, 
We started by grace, and then for all eternity, we are going to be shown the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's it. That's heaven. The immeasurable. Can't measure it. The immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us, towards people like us in Christ Jesus. If people ask you what you think heaven will be like, you can say that you're hoping we can still eat bacon, okay? You can say that. But you know for sure it's going to be the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus all day, every day. Maybe bacon is the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Hmm. But did you catch what Paul said when he described eternity? Ages. Plural. The coming ages. I don't even know what that means. Ages. That's humbling. I don't even have a category for plural ages in eternity. And so eternity with the triune God in the new heavens and new earth, is going to be so incredible, so wonderful, so out of this world that Paul has to refer to it in the plural, ages. And what will God be doing for all of those ages? He will be showing us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For ages and 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 ages into eternity God will still be busy doing what he has been doing since Genesis chapter 3, showing us the immeasurable riches of his grace. For all of eternity, God's one-way love will keep washing over us like the waves of an ocean, wave after wave after wave after wave. And you thought heaven was going to be boring. Bacon? And the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness, that's heaven. And get this, God is ready and excited and he is anticipating his revealing the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He can't wait to show us just how good he is for all eternity, just how kind he is for all eternity. And notice, it's not the immeasurable riches of his crankiness in holiness toward us in Christ Jesus. Because that's how some preachers paint the picture. Eternity with an uptight God. Because that's the God they preach now. Eternity with a cranky father. His crankiness in holiness for ages. Listen, Jesus did not come to condemn us and shame us. God's law already does that. We read it in our catechism question. Can anybody keep the law of God perfectly? No, no human being can. Only the God-man did, Jesus. God's law condemns us as sinners. Jesus came not to condemn but to save And that's why he came, to rescue us, to help us. God sent Jesus to become poor in order to transfer us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. And that's what Paul means 
when he says that Jesus became poor in verse 9. He took on humanity. He took on the limitations of humanity. He was born a baby and was absolutely dependent on the milk that came from his mother's breast. He was absolutely dependent upon his mother, Mary, changing his diapers for him. He was God in the flesh, yes, but that doesn't mean he can change his own diaper. He was absolutely dependent upon his mother. He was just like we are, except without sin. He took on the limitations of humanity in the incarnation, which means he experienced hunger. He needed to take naps. He would stub his toes. He would experience indigestion because Peter made something too spicy, perhaps. He took on all the limitations of humanity just like us as we are except without sin. He humbled himself and took on human flesh. And this is what Paul also talks about in that famous passage in Philippians 2 where he says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul is talking about how Jesus gave up his rights and became a servant when he took on human flesh. He gave up his rights and served others when he became poor. He made himself nothing. He became poor and became a servant. He did not, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2, did not see his status as God to be something that gave him the opportunity to get and to get and to get and to take and to take and to take. Instead, he gave. What did he do? Paul says he emptied himself. Well, what does that mean? It's part of what Paul means when he says that Jesus became poor. It means that Jesus gave up his rights. He emptied himself. He did not empty himself of anything. He did not empty himself of any of his deity. He did not empty himself of any of his attributes. Otherwise, he would cease to be God. No part of Jesus' nature as God was changed or tweaked in the incarnation when he became poor. He did not give up any of his divine attributes at all. What he did is he took on something. He added something human flesh. Jesus gave up no aspect of his deity in the incarnation when he became poor. There was no change in either nature, the divine or the human nature. That's what the definition of Chalcedon, the Council of Chalcedon, was talking about. There's no change in either one of these properties, God and man, when they come together. He didn't lose any of his attributes. If he did, he's not God anymore. Now, that's a mystery. How can the eternal, infinitely glorious, omnipotent, all-knowing God come together in a very limited human body? 
It's a mystery, isn't it? And I cannot point to anything in creation and say, that's what it's like to be the God-man. It's a mystery which should cause us to marvel and worship. It's not a mystery to be cracked. It's a mystery that should humble you. There was no change in either nature, God or man. He did not empty himself or lay aside any divine property and attributes when he took on human flesh. So when Paul says that he emptied himself, he means that Jesus gave up his rights. He made himself nothing. He humbled himself and became a servant. He became poor that we might become rich so that we might love and care for others the way Jesus loved and cared for us. As one of my church history professors, Eric Hartman, says, Jesus was born to serve. Christian, you were born again to serve. That's the impact of Jesus' humanity in Philippians chapter 2 and 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We were born again to serve others, to love God and to love our neighbors. John Calvin said, Since then the Son of God descended from so great a height How unreasonable that we, who are nothing, should be lifted up with pride. Let me read that again. Since then, the Son of God descended from so great a height. How unreasonable that we, who are nothing compared to Him, right? That we should be lifted up with pride. His humility, a baby. Nursing, needing his diaper changed, totally dependent on his mama. That's what it means that he became poor. Think about what humility is displayed in the incarnation when Jesus became poor. And then think about how often we have such a high view of ourselves, how often our hearts are lifted up with pride. Listen, the incarnation of Jesus will humble you if you let it. The incarnation of Jesus will knock the swagger out of your step if you let it. The God who owns everything became poor. Think about that. He owned Saturn. And he came here and said, I'll be your servant. He owns the entire universe. He made the entire universe. He owns everything. And he said, I will come here and I will wash feet. The God who owns everything became poor so that we could be rich. Now think about this. Jesus owns everything that everybody owns. You own things that I don't own. So I can't come into your house and go through your Star Wars action figure collection and say, this ultra rare Boba Fett action figure with the rocket firing backpack is mine. I can't do that. I think we have, there's a slide for it. Look at that. I'd like to do that. I'd like to come into your house and take your Boba Fett with the rocket-firing backpack from you because I, in 1979, I sent in four proofs of purchases to get said Boba Fett action figure with the rocket-firing backpack, but shortly after its release, the rocket-firing backpack became a choking hazard, so the Boba Fett that came in the mail for me did not have a firing rocket from his backpack. And they never told me that. Or maybe as a kid, I just threw the paper away and didn't pay attention. And so I thought my Boba Fett backpack rocket was jammed so I pulled and wiggled and it broke and now my Boba Fett action figure is missing half of his rocket 
which I still have. I was going to bring it and I forgot it. I'm still working through these issues in counseling. I think, I think it was Hasbro who uh, hurt me deeply in 1979. So I can't come into your house and get your ultra-rare Boba Fett action figure with the rocket-firing backpack because it belongs to you, not to me. But if Jesus knocks on your door, he has the right to take it because everything belongs to him, even your Boba Fett. And he gave up everything, all the glories of heaven, in order to become poor, to become a servant, to become a human being, in order to make us rich. Not financially, spiritually. And he became poor by becoming like us. That's what that phrase means. He left the palaces of heaven for the skid rows of this world. And when the Son of God became man... He became poor, and therefore the incarnation is not flattery because we're not that awesome, are we? Certainly not when compared with the glories of heaven. Yes, we are made in God's image. We have value. We have worth. But Jesus becoming a human being was not like he got an upgrade. He came down in humility to take on human flesh forever. Jesus has a physical body right now. He will have a physical body forever. He didn't become a human because we're the hottest item, as if we were some ultra-rare Boba Fett action figure with a rocket-firing backpack. He became poor. Get this. For our sake. For people like us. Look at verse 9 again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. For your sake. Underline those words. Circle those words. Highlight those words. Get a tattoo of those words if you want to. Because those three words are why you will not spend eternity in hell, Christian. He became poor for your sake. He lived a perfect life for your sake. He died a brutal, bloody death on the cross for your sake. He rose from the dead for your sake. He ascended to the right hand of God and intercedes for you for your sake. And he's coming again to judge the world for your sake. That's what the Nicene Creed stressed. During the winter of 324-325 AD, the first ecumenical council was called in Nicaea, what is modern-day Turkey, to discuss the teachings of a heretic named Arius, who was going around and getting very popular, by the way, teaching that Jesus was the very first being that God created. He, He was the first thing that God created. And his teachings were gaining popularity in the church, and so a church council was called to refute the teachings of Arius. And after many meetings and many discussions, on June 19, 325 AD, the Nicene Creed was composed, and it affirmed that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, was not created, but shared God the Father's nature and essence as God. Here's what the Nicene Creed says about Jesus. And I want you to notice that they wanted to stress that Jesus came for us in our salvation, for our sake, to use Paul's language. 
Here's what it says. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father as only begotten. That is, from the substance of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence, one in, with the Father, through whom all things came into existence, the things in heaven and the things on earth, who, because of men in our salvation, came down and was incarnated, made man, suffered, and arose the third day, ascended into heaven, and comes to judge the living and the dead. Jesus came down, as the Nicene Creed says, for us and our salvation. The Nicene Creed went out of its way to make sure that phrase was in there. He was incarnated. He became poor for us and our salvation for our sake. That's just the kindness of God. That's the generosity of God, which is what Paul is directing the Corinthian church to. Paul is pointing the Corinthians to the humility of the incarnation to stir them up to be generous and to show their love and care for the suffering church in Jerusalem. So he points to the generosity of Jesus becoming poor so that we could be rich so that the Corinthians would be generous. Generous is not a popular word these days, is it? Generous. Proverbs 19, 17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Wow. If you give, you give to Jesus, and he will repay you. The humility of God is staggering, isn't it? You give to the poor, then it says if you give to Jesus. This is what Paul is getting at in 2 Corinthians 8. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the poor, lends to the Lord. Jesus associates with the poor. He cares for little unknown people just as much as he cares for the mighty. There's no swagger in Jesus. He's humble and his heart is drawn to those who offer him nothing but need. And when we give, we give to him. That's humbling. And he will repay and reward us when we are generous. And so the principle here in 2 Corinthians 8 is we give because he gave. We give because he gave. We give because he became poor so that through his poverty, through his sacrifice, we would become rich. Well, what does that mean, rich? It's talking about all the spiritual blessings, that we are forgiven of our sins, that we are declared righteous by God, that we are justified, that we are adopted into God's family, that we will experience resurrection and get new glorified bodies, and that we will reign with Christ on the new earth and enjoy God forever. Reigning with Christ while eating bacon. So verse 9 shows us the ground or the reason for all giving, all serving, all loving, all caring, all ministry. It should be rooted in the giving of Jesus. We give because he gave. Paul is telling the Corinthians that God is rich in grace 
And he's a big spender, and we should be like him. He's not tight. He's not stingy. Give, give, give. It's what Jesus does. And so God gives to us that we might give to others, but we can never forget that what we give to others has already been given to us by God. We're just kind of middlemen in this whole thing. God says, I'm going to give you all this stuff, and then you pass it on to other people. We forget that, don't we? All that we have, we received is from God. It's a gift. That's humbling. John Calvin said, All the endowments which we possess are divine deposits entrusted to us for the very purpose of being distributed for the good of our neighbor. All the endowments, everything that we own, are divine deposits entrusted to us for the very purpose of being distributed for the good of our neighbor. All your gifts, all your talents, your skills, your money, everything that you have, was given to you by God as a gift to be used to bless others, not to become a hoarder. All of these gifts have been entrusted to you as a deposit from God so that you can bless your neighbor. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 is in the Bible to remind us that God is rich in grace and he's a big spender. He put his money where his mouth is by sending his son Jesus. He gave and he gives us all kinds of gifts, but the ultimate gift, get this, the ultimate gift is himself. He became poor that we might become rich so that salvation is not about God being far away, just off in the distance, just lobbing down some sort of help to us, just lobbing down some grace. No, salvation is God coming down, graciously giving us himself, his own life, and his own riches. So God is the real blessing of the gospel. The biggest spending spree that God went on was when he sent Jesus. I mean, he splurged. He went all out. He gave us himself. That ought to knock your socks off. Because we don't deserve it, do we? Kelly Capick says, The only thing we own and can offer to God is our sin. So he takes it from us. And gives us himself. Wow. All we have to give to God is, here's my sin. And he says, I'll take that. Here you go. All of me. For you. Amazing. That's 2 Corinthians 8, 9. It's the heartbeat of what we believe and cherish. This is Christmas and Easter all rolled into one verse in verse 9 here. We give God our sin. That's all we can give him. That's all he asks for. And in return, he gives us himself. For our sake. For our sake. He doesn't come to get. He doesn't need anything. God doesn't need anything. He didn't send Jesus because he needed something. God is self-sufficient. That's his aseity. He's independent of his creation. He's not dependent on his creation. He comes to give, not to get. He came for us in our salvation, as the Nicene Creed says so beautifully. And that's the corporate aspect there, isn't it? For us... And our salvation. But you know what? You need to personalize it this morning for you. You need to say, he did it all for my sake. And that will humble you. You need to make it very personal today and say, he became poor for me. He lived a perfect life for me. 
He died a brutal, bloody death on the cross for me. He rose again for me. He ascended to the right hand of God and intercedes for me. He's coming again for me. And when you rub 2 Corinthians 8, 9 into your pores, it will change your life. A final word from Richard Sibbs. He's a, a Puritan. They called him the sweet dropper because his sermons were just oozing with the goodness and kindness of God. And that's how they described him, the sweet dropper. That's a pretty cool name. Richard Sibbs wants us to know that Jesus doesn't come to us for his end as if he needed anything in this transaction, but that he comes for ours, for us and our salvation, for our sake, because God does not need us at all. These words from Richard Sibbs are another great commentary on 2 Corinthians 8 9. He says this, Doth he come empty? No. He comes with all grace. His goodness is a communicative, diffusive goodness. He comes to spread his treasures, to enrich the heart with all grace and strength, to bear all afflictions, to encounter all dangers, to bring peace of conscience and joy in the Holy Ghost. He comes indeed to make our hearts, as it were, a heaven. Do but consider this. He comes not for his own ends, but to empty his goodness into our hearts. Wow. He doesn't come for himself. He comes to empty his goodness into our hearts. And then he uses this nursing mother language that I love. He says, as a breast that desires to empty itself when it is full, so this fountain hath the fullness of a fountain which strives to empty his goodness into our souls. He comes out of love to us. Let these considerations melt our hearts. May his grace melt your heart today so that you part ways with your darling sins and then you use all that he has given you for the good of your neighbor. That'll please him. Let's pray. Jesus, indeed, you're calling to us in a loud voice this morning. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. And so, once again, I join my brothers and sisters in coming to you right now with my heart as wide open as the Spirit enables. We humble ourselves before you. We own the need that only you can meet. We're not ashamed to let you know just how much we need to be refreshed by you this morning. You love to give, and we love to receive from you. And as grace runs downhill to the needy, so it flows freely to others. So to whom would you send us today, Jesus? Who needs a word of encouragement or a listening heart, a praying friend, or just a bit of refreshment? Freely we receive, freely we will give. So very amen, we pray in your most generous and graceful name.